and welcome to the St. Emlyn's podcast. I'm Rick Boddy. It's a pleasure again to introduce to you Kirsten DeWitt, a great friend of mine from McMaster in Canada and an expert in venous thromboembolism. I'm sure you've already heard our basics podcasts about the basics of the new oral anticoagulants. This is part two of that series where we're going to delve into some of the more advanced topics. Hello, Kirsten. Hi, Rick. Thanks for having me here again on St. Emlyn's. Thanks for coming back. I want to start by making an important point that our St. Emlyn's editorial team asked me about after our last podcast. For anyone who's wondering, neither Kirsten nor I have any significant conflicts of interest to declare in the NOACs. We haven't received any money from the manufacturers. We don't have any vested interest in NOACs being used clinically. This is simply a FOMED podcast, which we hope you'll enjoy. Kirsten, let's get started with venous thromboembolism. This is probably the most common reason why we might use a NOAC in the emergency department. But what's the evidence for using a NOAC in those situations? Well, there have been um, several large phase three studies looking at each of the new oral anticoagulants that are currently in use. So rivaroxaban, for example, was analysed in the Einstein DVT and Einstein PE trial. And there they did a head-to-head comparison. It was a randomised control trial of rivaroxaban versus warfarin. And they started rivaroxaban at a higher dose of 15 milligrams twice a day for the first three weeks. And then they reduced to 20 milligrams once a day thereafter. And they found that essentially the rate of recurrent deep vein thrombosis or pulmonary embolism was very similar in the same group and that the rate of major and minor bleeding was also similar. So they showed that actually rivaroxaban is equivalent to warfarin anticoagulation in acute venous thrombosis. Then there's the RECOVER study, which looked at dobigatran, and um, they looked at dobigatran 150 milligrams twice a day. The interesting thing for dobigatran is they initially treated all patients with low molecular weight heparin for several days, before they started the dobigatran. So there's really been no study comparing dobigatran from the word go against warfarin. They, all these studies use low molecular weight heparin first. So they found equally that dobigatran was equivalent to warfarin for the treatment of acute deep vein thrombosis and pulmonary embolism. And then there's a third big study, which was Amplify. And Amplify compared apixaban to warfarin in acute DVT and PE. To Amplify took a similar approach to rivaroxaban in that they started straight off with apixaban and they used a higher dose this time for one week. So they used 10 milligrams twice a day for the first seven days followed by five milligrams twice a day. And again they showed equivalence to warfarin. So I'm Picking up on a few key take-home messages from all of this, Kirsten, I'm hearing that all of these agents seem to have similar efficacy to warfarin, if not perhaps even slightly better in some of the studies, although not reaching statistical significance. And they had similar bleeding rates. That's right, yeah. Great. And they had some real advantages for us in the emergency department as well. It's quite convenient because when we start patients on warfarin, we start them on low molecular weight heparin for a while. And then we make the transition to warfarin, which of course requires quite intensive monitoring initially. With the NOACs, we're talking about potentially 
simply prescribing some tablets for the patient, they will start right away and not need to come back to clinics for transitions, just to have their urea and electrolytes checked periodically. Yes, that's right. So particularly with rivaroxaban and apixaban, then there's really the opportunity to start straight off with the tablets. Wow, so that's really convenient for patients and for us in the ED. But should we be doing this for every single patient? We talked in the the first episode of this series about some of the cautions and contraindications, but are there any other considerations for our individual patients? How do we decide which patients should receive a NOAC and who should receive warfarin, for example? There's very limited evidence looking at patients with massive pulmonary embolism who require thrombolysis or maybe even surgery for their PE. And it's likely these NOACs will actually be very useful in the future for these patients, but we don't really have the evidence. And so generally speaking, we often keep those patients on low molecular weight heparin for even up to two weeks because there's a feeling that's a predictable effect, that they're very effective at improving the physiological outcomes in patients with large burden pulmonary embolism. And then after two weeks, we would look at which oral anticoagulant to put them on. And then the second patient group would be the cancer patients. And there's very compelling evidence that patients with cancer likely do better with low molecular weight heparin. And usually the standard of care is that they would stay on whichever low molecular weight heparin is the one of choice, so daltaparin or inoxaparin or tinzaparin. And that's partly because of interaction with chemotherapy and also the problems with giving an oral medication if you're having chemotherapy with nausea, vomiting and diarrhoea. So cancer patients, we would tend not to start a new oral anticoagulant on. And then obviously patients who are pregnant or breastfeeding, we wouldn't uh, use these medicines for. And generally for pregnancy, we would stick to low molecular weight heparin. And I think that the big, big uh, indication for warfarin over the new medications would be renal failure. So a creatinine clearance less than 30, then absolutely the go-to drug is warfarin. Okay, and in no circumstances, if you're starting warfarin, you've still got to consider the implications of using low molecular weight heparin initially, because that has a real caution in renal failure too. Absolutely. And What we would do here is we'd actually admit the patient and treat them with intravenous heparin, start the warfarin as soon as possible, but it does mean that they'd be, you know, sitting in a medical ward for maybe five or six days until the INR is greater than two and then the intravenous heparin stopped. Okay, I've started to use NOACs a little bit for patients with DVT in particular. And what I tend to do is discuss the use of a NOAC with the patient. Do you think there is a role for incorporating patient preference when you're deciding whether to use warfarin or a NOAC? Yeah, absolutely. That's what I would do standardly here. So I think the patients are always interested to know about the medication they're going to be prescribed. And different patients value different aspects in in different ways, really. So I know some patients are very frightened, for example, of being on warfarin because they hear it's rat poison. So it may be a slightly irrational fear, but many of them are desperate not to be prescribed warfarin and would rather be prescribed a new medication, albeit that it's only been used for a few years. Some patients are very happy to go for their INR blood tests and they quite like the trip out. It suits them. They're happy to stay with warfarin. Other patients, they might be working full time, they might have to travel for their work. It can be a real pain having to get their INR checked. 
and even you can buy little portable home monitors but they're expensive and the test strips are expensive so even then you have to have a really good setup whereby they could maybe test their INR and then email their family doctor or here at Bithrombosis Clinic to, to be told how to change their warfarin monitoring. So most of those patients are very keen for a new oral anticoagulant. So I usually tell them the risks, the downsides, um, our experience with the, the medicines and I let them choose. That's interesting because that's uh, very similar to the approach that I've been taking across here actually and my experience is that patients tend to, unbalance prefer the NOACs when you express all of the risks and all of the benefits, particularly the younger patients who like the advantage of having no monitoring. But I, I do think it's important to be upfront with the patients and tell them all about the pros and cons. I tell them about the lack of a reversal agent, which we're going to touch on later. But so far, I haven't actually found anybody particularly objecting about that. I don't know about you. Well, that's an interesting one too. I, I do always mention it. Um, but I do also mention that in the studies, there was less bleeding in, in some cases and patients um, on the new medications compared to warfarin. So, for example, if I was prescribing a Pixaban, there's much less bleeding. So although it might be more difficult to reverse the medication, there may be fewer times when that would happen. The second thing is that the, the half-life of these medications is much shorter than the effect of warfarin. So if I give a dose of warfarin today, it's not going to reflect in the INR for two days. So with these medicines, if they had a serious accident, let's say they're downhill skiing, they have a brain injury, well, if they took their last rivaroxaban tablets, 11 hours previously, then it's only going to be hanging around in their bloodstream for maybe another 11-12 hours. I get a mixed reaction from patients. Some of them are, find this very, very important to them. So there are a lot of people in Canada who are a bit active. Hockey, ice hockey here is really important. We usually advise people not to play ice hockey because of the risk of head injury when they're on an anticoagulant, but some patients prefer to do so. And on occasion, they think it's so important that they would want to be on warfarin. But on the whole, patients seem to prefer to go on to the new medications, and this seems to be less of an issue. The, the other really interesting thing that's come up quite a few times, particularly with women who are maybe trying to watch their weight, is they find with warfarin, they have difficulties going on diets because they, they, they feel that they can't take a lot of green salads. They feel that they can't convert it to a healthy diet because everyone's a little paranoid about eating food stuff with vitamin K. And I've had quite a few referrals for patients who want to change from warfarin to another agent simply because they have the freedom to, to eat the diet they want to eat. That's such an important tip and we can only get that from an expert. These things that we just wouldn't think about. One consideration is the cost of these new agents. We all know that they're likely to cost a lot more than, than warfarin because it's a very cheap drug. But is that something that we should be worried about? Well, I think it's an interesting question and perhaps it depends on the indication for the anticoagulation. So if you have a patient with a provoked deep vein thrombosis, so let's say they've just had hip surgery, they've now got a deep vein thrombosis, well, they'll likely only need three months of anticoagulation. So the cost to them or to society or to the National Health Service is going to be less compared to somebody 
who has atrial fibrillation, who's maybe 60 years old and might have a life expectancy up to 80 or 90. So they could potentially be on this anticoagulation for 30 years. And we, we know that warfarin, when you actually factor in the cost of the warfarin, and, and even if the patient has to come and get an INR blood check, and if you cost all the hidden costs of nursing care, perhaps telephoning the patient, the patient traveled to the hospital to get the INR, it's still much cheaper than these newer options because the actual manufacturing of warfarin is so cheap. I'm not sure of the exact price in the UK, but here in Canada, each of these new medications has been costed out at around $4 per day. And warfarin comes in at just a few pennies per day. Great. From a UK perspective, it's important for us to point out for our British audience that NICE has actually issued some guidance on the use of NOAX and has deemed that it's acceptable to consider NOAX for venous thromboembolism and for atrial fibrillation. So we've got the green light from a cost perspective, even within the NHS. That brings us nicely on to the next topic that we were going to cover, which is the use of NOAX for atrial fibrillation. This is quite a topical issue, I guess. We see lots of patients with atrial fibrillation in the emergency department. We're probably getting used to doing CHADS VASC scoring and that sort of thing. What's the evidence for the use of NOAX in AF, Kirsten? Well, there have been several really big trials in the past five or six years, which have shown without a doubt that these medications are as good or potentially better than warfarin. The Rocket AF study looked at rivaroxaban, prescription for stroke prophylaxis. Rely was a study for dabigatran. Aristotle was for apixaban, and then more recently some, there was a study called Engage AF, which was looking at adoxaban. And these are all big studies with around about 18,000 patients in each study. They were all randomised control trials comparing warfarin, obviously with INR and dose adjustments, to prescription of these fixed dose oral anticoagulants. And uh, by and large, they all included patients with a CHAD score of one or more. And uh, the, the primary outcome was as much as possible um, uniform. So they were looking at systemic embolism. So obviously the major risk is stroke. Um, the most likely uh, place for an atrial thrombus to end up if it embolizes is in the brain. So stroke was a major outcome. But they would also include peripheral embolism, so acute ischemic limb, and splenic infarction, mesenteric infarction, and the other places that these emboli can end up. And that was the primary outcome. Then the secondary outcomes were bleeding. Unfortunately, they all have slightly different definitions of bleeding when they categorise major bleeding versus minor bleeding. So it makes it a little difficult to compare one to the other. But Certainly from each individual study, we're able to compare the rate of bleeding on warfarin to the rate of bleeding on each individual new oral anticoagulant. And uh, the, the medication that really sticks out from the point of view of bleeding is apixaban because it showed across the board a reduction in major bleeding. And apixaban was the only medication to have an overall mortality benefit. And uh, dabigatran, which was the first medication to be licensed for stroke prophylaxis, it was shown to actually have the greatest reduction in stroke. So the relative risk was 0.66. What I'm picking up from this is 
that a Pixaban sounded like a really attractive NOAC for both VTE and for AF. It's effective, at least as effective as Warfarin, and it has a lower bleeding rate. Not the same, it's actually lower. So we've talked here about use of the NOACs for patients in AF in order to prevent stroke on a long-term basis. But what about in the acute situation? In the ED, we see unstable patients in atrial fibrillation who might need urgent cardioversion and might not have been previously anticoagulated. At the moment, we might start them on low molecular weight heparin to get urgent anticoagulation. But are there no something that we could use in that situation in the ED? Absolutely. So in a patient with new onset atrial fibrillation who you might want to cardiovert, particularly if it was a patient with a low CHAD score, so their CHADs might be one or two, and it's someone who you might be sending home in order to come back to a cardiology clinic to perhaps have their atrial fibrillation further evaluated, then those are the ideal patients to be started on one of the new medications. And I think it's important that we start those as soon as possible because that does give the patient an advantage in um, stroke prophylaxis from day one. So there are two uses there. One is that we could give them a stat dose of a NOAC and then cardiovert them if they were completely unstable and it needed doing urgently. Because that's what you're telling me is that these NOACs work very quickly. And number two, if our patient's got new onset atrial fibrillation, We know that they're going to need anticoagulation because we want to aim for rhythm control. Then we could start them on a NOAC and bring them back for elective cardioversion at a later date. And that's got real advantages over warfarin because the dose is effective right away, doesn't need monitoring, and we can literally bring them back for their cardioversion uh, when it's due. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I suppose the third route that we take more commonly here in Canada is... We would routinely start anybody with new atrial fibrillation. We would routinely try and cardiovert them, even if it's unclear whether it's paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. So that would give us an additional coverage. We would give them a new oral anticoagulation medication. Then we would try chemical cardioversion and progress to electrical cardioversion if the chemical failed, and then we would send them home. Obviously, that's somebody who has only had symptoms of atrial fibrillation for one absolute maximum two days. Wow. The last thing I wanted to talk about on uh, atrial fibrillation is about dabigatran. Now, dabigatran is an agent we've all been using for a while for atrial fibrillation. It's been subject to quite a bit of recent controversy. There was a publication in the BMJ suggesting that Boehringer Ingelheim, the company that manufactures dabigatran, might have hidden some data about the need for monitoring. Obviously, that pricks our ears up because we think about another pharma scandal. But does this have any implications for us? And is it it really true? Have Boehringer hidden information from us about the need for monitoring? Well, here in Canada, we would never suggest monitoring to Bigotran. I think the real-life data has shown us, and and actually our real-life experience, has shown that Bigotran is highly sensitive to changes in renal function. So particularly in the elderly, perhaps a small bump in the creatinine could cause a major impact on renal function. And we, as you, we all know, when you have an elderly person who is septic or who has another medical, acute medical issue, will very likely develop short-term acute renal failure. 
And if they continue to take their dabigatran, then the half-life of dabigatran is going to extend from the more usual 11 hours up to maybe 20 hours or longer. So if that patient continues to take the twice-a-day dabigatran, then they will definitely develop a bleeding state. And dabigatran sticks out amongst these new oral anticoagulants because it is the most dependent on normal renal function whereas apixaban and rivaroxaban have mostly hepatic clearance. And I think apixaban is about 25% renally cleared and rivaroxaban is about a third renally cleared. But dabigatran is about 75% renally cleared. And I think that's really been the major issue is that people who have perhaps borderline renal function and in particular the elderly who become sick will accumulate dabigatran and will likely bleed. So I think it's more about the safe prescription of the drug than necessarily needing to monitor everybody's plasma levels. The other phenomenon which has been seen very recently here in Canada is that the, the whole profile of these anticoagulant prescriptions have changed in the last four years. So in 2009, there was only warfarin, so obviously 100% of patients with atrial fibrillation needing anticoagulation were on warfarin. But then if you look at 2010, dabigatran came on the scene, and 2011 there was only dabigatran. So prescribing with dabigatran really took off, and it probably became more like a third of patients were on dabigatran and maybe two-thirds on warfarin. And then with the appearance of rivaroxaban, and last year with the appearance of apixaban, these prescriptions have, have, have really, really taken off in their own right. So slowly, people who were on warfarin or dabigatran are now being changed onto apixaban because the feeling is that this, that, that medication is, is, is a lower risk of bleeding. So uh, I, I think it is really a changing times and it depends which medications you have access to, but Probably in the elderly, the, the safer option would be rivaroxaban or apixaban rather than the dabigatran. And that brings us on very nicely to the last thing that we wanted to cover, which is about how to manage the patient who bleeds while they're taking one of these NOACs, or the patient who is going to bleed because they need urgent surgery, for example. This is a very topical issue because there, of course, is no recognised reversal agent for a NOAC. Kirsten, what should you do if your patient who's taking a NOAC develops a major bleed? So I think the first thing you need to evaluate a little bit is what's the risk of this bleed, first of all. So obviously bleeding in the head, in, inside the cranium, is always going to be severe and that's going to be the most um, serious form of bleeding. If it's a GI bleed, is this a case of you know a minor GI bleed, possibly from hemorrhoids versus... A serious major GI bleed. If there's hematuria, what exactly is the colour of the urine? Is it uh, just rosé like wine or is it red wine or is it tomato juice? How long has the bleeding been going on? Are they hemodynamically stable? So that's the first thing. If it's a major bleed then obviously we want to do everything we can to first of all reduce the ongoing risk of potentiating that bleed with the anticoagulant and secondly stopping it. Obviously everyone in the emergency would do the natural things so we're going to cross match the patient, transfuse as necessary and get in touch with the person who can stop the bleeding. That's really important. The second thing that was important 
is have a look at the renal function. Are they in renal failure? If they are, then it's likely that whichever NOAC they have on board is going to stay with them for a long time. If they have normal renal function, then ask the patient, when did they last take a dose? Because if their last dose was over 24 hours ago, it's unlikely that they have any of the drug left in their system. So it's unlikely that it's potentiating the bleed, particularly if the patient's otherwise healthy. So for those who've recently taken their medication or have renal failure, um, there are a variety of things that we can do. Straight off for a serious bleed, we can give tranexamic acid, one gram IV. There's no harm in doing that. Secondly, we can look at giving blood products. So one thing that's looking more and more promising for dabigatran is something called FIBA, which is activated prothrombin complex concentrate. It was originally developed for treating haemophiliacs who are bleeding, and it, it appears to be very useful for helping partially reverse dabigatran. So if the patient's on dabigatran, your hospital might have access to FIBA, and that would be through the haematologist. If the patient's on apixaban or rivaroxaban, then prothrombin complex concentrate, so octaplex or beriplex or whichever manufactured version you have at your hospital will be very helpful. We have an ongoing study here looking at reversal or partial reversal of these agents using the prothrombin complex concentrate. The PCC was originally derived simply to reverse warfarin, and all it is is a combination of the warfarin clotting factors, so the clotting factors that warfarin depletes. So originally we gave PCC just to add back those clotting factors into the bloodstream for warfarin, and that's why it reverses warfarin immediately within 10 minutes. But there's more and more evidence that actually it's also useful for vapixaban and, and rivaroxaban. What are the other things that we have available to us then? Well, definitely, if you have some renal failure, then dialysis will get rid of dabigatran. And if it's someone who's bleeding to death who you can't control the hemorrhage, so um, I suppose unusual bleeding sites might be, say, pericardial with pericardial tamponade, but with the inherent problems of if you drain that and you have a coagulopathy on board, it's likely to reaccumulate, then that would, might be a good example of a patient who could be well hemodialyzed or the retroperitoneal bleed where you really can't treat, you can't turn off the tap as it were. And then that would also be a patient who you might consider dialyzing if they also had renal failure. And then patients who had come in with an acute overdose of dabigatran, if they're there within two hours, then maybe charcoal might help. There's something to, to bear in mind, but you'd have to give it pretty quickly. Wow. I, I imagine that Seeing a patient who's taken an overdose of a NOAC would be one of the scariest things an emergency physician can see because there's no way of monitoring the, those effects. So you've given us a really fascinating overview about how to manage the patient who bleeds while taking a NOAC. And just to summarise what you said, it boils down to doing the simple things first, assessing the severity of the bleed and doing what we'd always do to manage a haemorrhage. Then in terms of the specifics for patients taking dabigatran, we might give FIBA, and for patients who are taking rivaroxaban or apixaban, we might consider prothrombin complex concentrate. If the patients have renal failure, then we might consider dialysis. 
One other thing I, I wanted to mention is that we're running a, a trial in Manchester, actually, of a monoclonal antibody to the Bigatran called Darisuzumab. I think they called it that just for convenience. But that could potentially reverse the Bigatran rapidly and is one to keep an eye on. We don't know how well it's going to work yet, but it's a phase three trial, so we've got our hopes up. One thing that cropped into my mind, Kirsty, when you were uh, talking about how to manage bleeding is what to do if you have a patient who is taking a NOAC and isn't actively bleeding, but is very sick and, let's say, needs central access urgently. If they were taking warfarin, I used to check their INR, and I used to be feeling a bit more comfortable if the INR was less than four. I can't do that now with a NOAC. How should we approach central access in that situation? I think it's like anything, you weigh up the risks and the benefits. So first of all, do you need central access? And secondly, where do you need it? So would a femoral line do rather than an internal jugular or a subclavian? If it has to be an internal jugular or subclavian, then I guess you get the best person to do it. So you get the person who never misses. (laughs) You use ultrasound guidance. There's no single blood test you can do to say how much of the anticoagulant is there. There are some rough guidelines. So with dabigatran, we would see a change in the APTT. So if the APTT is anyway elevated, then for sure there's dabigatran on board. It's a little bit more tricky with rivaroxaban and apixaban. Uh, You might see a change in the INR, but it doesn't really necessarily equate to the degree of anticoagulation. And I think it's, it's probably much more informative to look at the creatinine to see if they have renal failure and ask the patient when did they last have their dose. So if they have normal renal function and their last dose was over 24 hours ago, then you can feel a bit more confident about putting that line in. If their last dose was two hours ago, then you have to consider the patient's fully anticoagulated. Okay, so we've had some absolutely sage advice from you, Kirsten, through this podcast series on NOAC. Do you find in practice that NOACs are really taking over from warfarin in Canada? Definitely, absolutely. And although warfarin will always be needed, and there will always be patients who warfarin is more suitable for, and there will always be patients who prefer warfarin, in general, I think we're very close to 50-50 now, and we're heading into the majority of patients on NOACs and the minority on warfarin. It's a medication that's here to stay, and as much as we might feel uncomfortable about it, it's a medicine that we will end up having to prescribe in the emergency department. So it's important that we feel a bit more comfortable with using these. Great advice, Kirsten. Thanks very much indeed. It's been uh, wonderful having you on the show. Thanks for joining us. We hope to have you back again soon to talk about some more of your areas of expertise. Thanks very much. From all of us at the St. Emlyn's podcast, thanks for tuning in. See you next time.